told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to your horror podcast, home of all things sticky, nasty, and full of crap. I'm your host, Jared White, and this is The White Guy Dies First. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Oh, God! Oh, Jesus Christ! What do you want? I want to hear you scream. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Well, 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 this is going to be somewhat of an awkward one to talk about because uh, this is a book that is set in a post-apocalyptic uh, environment that is a direct result of a uh, infection coming from China. And this book was written in 2018. This is Severance by Ling Ma, and it feels very weird to read this in a modern day, uh, in the middle of being, uh, you know, part of the biggest pandemic in modern history. Uh, so I, it's kind of a daunting task to talk about this sort of, uh, narrative because, uh, obviously right now we're dealing with the, the sort of cartoonish reality that we live in where the government and, uh, the general public are not able to keep things, um, sane, I guess you would say. And, uh, clearly, you know, uh, Ling Ma had no idea what was going to be coming. Uh, this is, this is years before COVID and it, uh, it comes off as very quaint as very sort of like, oh, you think that like the worst thing that's going to happen is like, uh, like literally at one point, uh, the only riots that happen in this story are, are from people trying to get money from their banks. Like, like, uh, President Obama comes up and it like bails out the banks and gives them a big sort of cash inflection and uh, the banks just sort of run away with the money and people protest and are like, you know, you guys are the 99%, give us the money. And uh, looking at that now, it's sort of like, oh, like, oh, you, you really thought that people would wear masks? Like people wear masks in this and take care of themselves and have like parties where everyone's responsibly wearing um facial coverings and it's it's really weird and sad to read that uh that this book sort of treats humans and human society with more respect than we do now and uh it makes it really i I don't want to say it's aged poorly but it is just so weird uh to read this now because it is so sort of this optimistic naive sort of affair um but this is the first book by ling ma i believe this is their their novel introduction here to the to the world of literature and uh overall i would say it does a lot of really good things a lot of stuff that i like um but there are points where it falls a little bit flat on the content side uh, and doesn't sort of deliver on a few of the uh, more hard-hitting zones that I would have preferred. So uh, what's it about? It's about this uh, this girl, Candace Chen, who is a immigrant from China. Her parents immigrated here to America um, because the dad wanted to uh, make like a better life for his family and the mom wasn't really into it, but she's like, you know what? Okay, fine. I guess if you're going to force us to be here, whatever. And um, the dad was a really hard worker. The mom sort of just went along with it because she had to and she she and the father ingrained into Candace like this really hard working mentality like, you know, you are in America, you've got all of these uh, these p possibilities now that you would not have had in China and your goal is to get educated, to make a lot of money and to live a really good life. And it's ingrained very heavily into Candace and, uh, Candace eventually when she grows up, she moves to New York and sort of settles in there and she has a lot of, uh, sexy encounters with, uh, different people. It's sort of this, uh, initially this self-destructive sort of thing because, uh, her father died in a car accident and, um, and she is now living off of sort of this, uh, this trust that is given to her. She knows that she's got like six or seven years before the trust money runs out. So she's just sort of living it up, sexing it up in, in, uh, New York. And that part isn't really expanded upon a lot. And unfortunately, this happens quite a bit in this novel where we're just sort of given a quick sketch of things, um, that aren't really expanded upon. And I would have preferred if, if, um, if Ling Ma had had the uh, sort of the courage to to dig a little deeper, um, this is actually a fairly long book. It's 291 pages, uh, at least the edition that I have. Um, and what I've just told you about her family and all that 
is not told to us in chronological order. The book actually starts off with uh, Candace meeting up with a group of people um, that is led by this religious fanatic uh, known as Bob. Uh, and she she goes along with them, and they sort of are trying to put together a little society of survivors. It's not really made clear why they are survivors and why they are not affected by what is essentially a zombie plague, but um, it, the, the book starts off with, with uh, them meeting up and sort of joining together, and I think they get, like, Thunderbolt tattoos or something. I have to say, this prologue, is, it almost feels like it's coming from a different book, uh, and the and the and the way that uh, Ling Ma describes sort of Candace's uh, life before the end of of society does also feel like a, a totally separate narrative. It's like two different books got stitched together, um, and and I don't think it really works a lot of the time. But before I start talking about the negatives, I really want to go into the positives because I do have some positive things to say here. Um, to begin with, this takes a more original approach to the to the zombie apocalypse formula. It takes um, a book out of The Last of Us, actually, where the uh, the zombies are not technically zombies; they're just infected with um, with like a fungal thing. Uh, it's called Shen fever uh, because it comes from the Shen zone, or it's something to do with China. I actually don't know. 100% why it's it's kind of not explained wonderfully. Uh, there's a few I've bookmarked bookmarked a couple places where like Candace gets a hold of a flyer or some notice from the CDC about how it spreads, but it's um it's really weird because her group of survivors kind of uh, thinks that they they are like the chosen ones, chosen by God. Bob is really a religious guy, and he thinks that the reason that they've been spared from being turned into zombies is because they are, you know, divinely inspired. Um, and I think that that could have been an interesting way to go. Uh, that is actually something that has been done before with, of course, uh, Stephen King's The Stand, uh, which is a far, far, far longer book. Um, but I, I hate to, I hate to compare this book to The Stand, uh, but it does feel very similar to that. Uh, however, this does sort of bill itself more as the apocalypse happening in this hyper-competitive capitalistic society. Um, but I don't feel like it really delivers on that front. When I went into it, I was expecting a lot of office politics, a lot of cattiness, a lot of uh, her pushing against her boss or whatever, but there's not much of that. Uh, Candace works as a book publisher, uh, which is actually quite close to my heart because I'm a book publisher. Uh, I work for the... Uh, 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 I work for the college uh, CSU Stanislaus, and I, I'm employed by their uh, art and literature journal, Penumbra, and I'm the editor-in-chief there. So uh, when she starts talking about all these aspects of um, of book book design, I, I click onto that. I'm like, yeah, you know what? That does make a lot of sense. And uh, Candace is uh, employed to be a Bible publisher, actually, and we get a lot of interesting uh, discussion about what goes into publishing the Bible, which is... As the book says, like the most popular book every single year, every year, um, throughout all the years, it is the number one. And uh, they reprint it over and over and over again in different styles. You can get like little pocketbook, pocketbook Bibles. You can get really expensive ones. You can get ones encrusted with gemstones. And it's Candace's job to sort of be the middle manager between the Chinese supplier and the American uh, you know, a distributor, and it creates this wonderful little bit of diaspora where Candace did grow up in China as, as a young child. She had to live with her aunt and uncle while her parents went to a, uh, to, went to America to immigrate there and, and build up a life so that she could eventually join them. So she lived with her aunt and uncles for, for a little while. Uh, by the time she was like eight or something, she got to come to America. Um, so it, it creates this, this nice little, you know, uh, this diasporic, uh, feeling of not quite being in the right place and, the, and that the, the place where she feels most at home is with her parents, but her parents, you know, are immigrants. So it's sort of this weird, you know, do I belong in China? Do I belong in America? Do I not belong in either? Uh, she speaks Chinese, but not really well because she hasn't done it in a long time. Very basic. She can understand people. So it's interesting in that regard. Um, but I do think that, uh, that section should have been shortened a little bit. It takes up a significant portion of the book. Um, the main narrative that I'm interested in is post-fuck-up, uh, where everything has gone to shit, 
and uh, you know she's in with Bob's group, uh, which by the way I have to say Bob's group is not very memorable. Like the characters are pretty flat. It's only in the prologue that we get a lot of um, good stuff about any of them really. Um, and this is definitely not Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower. If you're expecting something kind of batshit insane, uh, you're in the wrong department, buddy, because this is mighty tame. And it actually kind of left me with a, a negative first impression because um, it seemed like it was being a little bit too too hip, too modern, too eager to drop brand names. Um, for example, here's, here's Bob's introduction from the beginning. Uh, this is page four. It says, um, our self-appointed leader, Bob, uh, a short, stout man who had worked in information technology, he was slightly older than us, though by how much it seemed room to, rude to ask. He was goth when he felt like it. <laughs> he never really seems goth uh, later, except when they eventually get to a mall. He, he sets up in like a hot topic, like that's his dibs, that's his room that he wants, so... Eh. Um, but, like, literally, that's the only other discussion of him being goth, and it happens, like, almost 200 pages later. Um, he was goth when he felt like it. He knew about being alone. He played, he had played every iteration of World of Warcraft with near-religious fever. It was as if he had prepared for this, this thing, this higher calling. Uh, and then it says, like, uh, later, like, puffing on his e-cigarette, the scent of French vanilla wafted through the night air. And, uh, you know, name-dropping that many brands and current technology was a little bit off-putting. Uh, you know, I'm not someone who says, like, oh, you know, you have to make your book feel timeless, because there is no such thing as timeless. You know, it's, it's, um, there is no such thing as timeless. So what? So, so somebody in the 1800s, they would say, well, you know, you gotta have... Uh, horse and buggy, otherwise it's not going to feel timeless, you know, so, uh, so that, that argument always gets me where it's like, eh, you shouldn't use too many brand names or whatever because uh, it's going to hurt the, uh, the readability. People are going to really see this as a time capsule sort of piece. Everything's a time capsule piece. Get off your freaking high horse, man. Um, but it does sort of irk me a little bit and it seems a little bit tryhardy when somebody tries to date their piece so so straightforwardly, like, okay, this is the time when e-cigarettes are happening, and he's goth, and he's got tattoos, and whatever. Um, so that's that's a little bit of an off-putting first step, but it doesn't really come into play uh, much later. What is really interesting, and I wish had been expanded upon more, is the actual zombies themselves. I don't think they're ever actually called zombies, um, but once you have, have been infected with Shen fever, you become what's known as, dun da da the fevered. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a kind of a on the nose sort of name um but the fevered are unique because unlike most zombie narratives uh the fevered don't give a shit about you or me they don't care about living people they don't want to infect anybody they don't want to eat anyone they don't want to even scrape scratch you scrape you whatever uh scratch scrape um they just go about their their own little weird routines and this is very clearly an allegory for uh, us in this, you know, going to going to work, going to take care of ourselves, being stuck in a rut uh, because the fevered, um, once they are infected, they just do the same repetitive actions again and again and again, and they don't stop. They're on a like a continuous loop. Uh, like in one case, they go into a house and it's like uh, this housewife is uh, is setting up the table for dinner and she calls the family like she gurgles to the family and they all come out and they just sort of mush their faces against the the, di the dining room uh, cutlery. And when they're all done, she puts them like she pretends to wash them and puts them back in the cabinet and then she takes them back out again and the whole cycle repeats on like a 15 minute loop. And uh, Candace says that the most disturbing thing about this is not that it repeats itself, is it is that there are slight variations. Like she won't always put down the same plate or the same fork in the in the same position, and it's those sort of you know little decisions that kind of make you wonder, like what's going on in there? Are they still conscious to some degree? It's implied that they're so disoriented that they just don't even know what's happening. Um, and that's really interesting. I really wish that this book had expanded upon that more. But as I said, a lot of this narrative is intercut with uh, sort of the preamble to to the uh, infection taking over the globe. We get a lot of Candace setting up like, 
uh, a new relationship. Like, she gets involved with this guy named Jonathan, and who's... (laughs) At one point, she describes his penis as a Schwarzenegger dick. (laughs) And, And I feel at times that this... Wonderful description is not expanded upon as, as I keep saying that, but it really is true. This does feel like a truncated uh, narrative, and I, I'm concerned that this this author, Ling Ma, did not allow themselves to prance outside the box. And I fear that they may have been thinking to themselves, well, I can't make it too graphic, too unrealistic. You know, how would people actually act in an epidemic? And by the way, she does call it an epidemic, even though, as we all know now, when something is uncontained and roaming around the whole world, it should be called a pandemic, but whatever. Um, it's, it's still pretty quaint and, uh, I don't know. I just feel like the violence is really being reined in. The only true disturbing violent moments come from like, okay, at one point uh, they find like a guy, like a dead guy in in a chair and there's like maggots all dripping out of his face and on his arms. And he's just like a a maggot mummy, if you will. And that's great. Uh, I actually made up that term that didn't use the term in the book. It's a maggot mummy. Um, And, and it's just, it's really sort of yucky gross. And in the same house uh at at one point actually you know what no i'm gonna save that for later i'm gonna save the maggot house story for a little bit later because there's something more interesting going on there but let's jump back to uh to bob's religious convictions because every time that they that 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 this group has to go into a house to uh to to procure provisions bob has them all do like a prayer circle thing and you know they have to say their names and um Again, there's so many people in this group that they just get no character development, and it's really just sort of separated into, like, oh, this person's sort of friends with Candace, and these people are more on Bob's side, uh, but they don't have much personality on their own. And I think that sort of... It, it makes me lose track of who's who. Like, there's there's Adam and Evan and Ashley and Janelle, and, you know, they're just... They're nothing, really. Um... A lot more character development is given to other side characters. Like at one point, uh, in her reminiscence of of her business dealings in China, uh, 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 freaking Candace goes to goes to China and goes to this really fancy business hotel, uh, which is super Europeanized. Like it's clear that a bunch of uh, European and white uh, business people come to this province of China to do business dealings in the factory dis- dr- district. And they've, they've made it very sort of super mega comfy, but you know, just like two blocks outside of this, of this little, uh, I don't want to say quarantine zone, but out of this little exclusionary zone, it's just the sort of dry, drab, rundown, uh, just people jammed in like, like, uh, like, I don't want to say, I'm not trying to say salami, like, like salmon, there you go, like, <laughs> they're jammed in like salami, like some big Schwarzenegger dick in, uh, uh, in a, in a place where Schwarzenegger dick shouldn't be, um, <laughs> um, but Candace gets to talk to one of the, one of the factory, uh, uh, managers named Balthazar, that's not actually his name, that's just sort of his business name, Balthazar, and he gives her, like, this big sort of, like, test of, like, okay, so it looks like you're Chinese. Do you know how to speak Chinese? And he, he speaks Chinese to her, and they kind of do a back and forth. Like, hey, do you know your name is uh, is based off of this Chinese poem? And she doesn't really know because her parents never really got her involved with that side of her family that still remained in China. So there's this wonderful little uncomfortable, like, ooh, is she going to be able to pass uh, this guy's sort of test here? And... um and when it's doing stuff like that, I really get invested in in Candace's sort of journey to be accepted in the business world and as a, you know as as like somebody who is a is someone who left uh, China behind but has to still kind of go back at times to a China she doesn't understand. And I really like that stuff. But uh, when it's it is it is interrupting the apocalypse story and that makes me feel really annoyed like there aren't that many chapters in this book there's only 26 and i would say of those 26 maybe only 10 if that are focused on um 
on the actual current events of dealing with the apocalypse and the rest of them are just relationship parent reminiscence uh childhood uh thinking and it's it it really gets in the way and i kind of wish that it had all been sort of front-loaded in the beginning of the book or or shortened or i don't know it just really kills the pacing of it and right when i'm getting invested in something that's happening like some drama going on with bob like um well i guess i should just say like at one point, they do they they go to one of the the houses to raid it. It's called a stock, uh, and they do like a prayer circle, and they all say their names. And when they go into the stock, into the house, uh, only the men go at first to clear out any of the fevered. Uh, Bob believes that the fevered should be released from their torment, uh, which just means like shooting them in the fucking face with an AK or a Kalashnikov or whatever he's got. He's got some sort of big ass machine gun. He just blows them out. And uh, it's very patriarchal, you know, Bob and just the men go and the women sort of have to wait uh, until they're, you know, the, the facility has been cleaned out, cleared out rather. Um, and at one point when they're doing one of the stalks, uh, Candace comes across this girl, this fevered girl who's been uh, sitting in a closet and just reading a book over and over and over again. And she kind of takes pity on the girl and doesn't want to doesn't want to reveal that it's that that uh, the kid's there. And, oh no, drama, Bob finds out, and uh, finds out that she was hiding it, tried to keep this fevered protected or whatever. And Bob, in his very parent-like asshole way, says, okay, well, you know, as punishment, you're going to have to shoot her. All right, and he gives her the gun and says, okay, Candace, shoot her. And the whole group's waiting, peer pressure time, and there, there's this really effective moment where, um, in the book, where Candace says, like, you know, I, I raised the gun and I shot and it hit her in the neck and I shot again and it hit her in the belly and then I shot again and it hit her in the side of the face tearing her ear off and then I shot again hit her in the face and again in the face and again in the face and the shoulder and the stomach and the face and it's it's really this hectic like oh my god sort of no one's stopping her uh thing and it it loses control and and that was really good I think that was probably the best part in the book is is that sort of you know, if we're getting this, uh, this narration from this character, I think it's important to place us in the emotional sort of trauma of the moment of having to shoot somebody in the face, even if they are a fevered person. Uh, because it is, again, remember that these, these zombies are not trying to cause direct harm. It's, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to shoot a zombie if it's coming at you in a horrible, gibbering way, trying to eat your face. Uh, this, they could just go on forever and they could burn themselves out and just eventually starve to death or whatever. But, um, but the, their group decides to, to fucking blast their face off. So is it a mercy? Is it not? I don't know, but it feels very wrong. And it feels like the way that Bob is going about it is wrong. Um, and later, uh, remember when I said the, the maggot mummy thing, uh, that is actually conducted by a, a, a search party that is separate from Bob. A few of the, a few of the group go to, um, go to the, one of the, I'm trying to think of it. It's the, uh, one of the members, Ashley, she lives in this, she used to live in this house. They're traveling by her childhood home and she kind of wants to, to go back and, and reclaim some, uh, <laughs> pardon me. She wants to reclaim some uh, weed that she has stashed in her in her uh, bedroom. And it's like, oh, come on, guys, we can go get some. And that'll help us sort of blunt having to deal with Bob's bullshit. And uh, the, this mini search party goes out and does their stock of the of the house and of Ashley's home, her former home. And the maggot mummy is is her dad. And thankfully, she doesn't see. But when they get up to Ashley's bedroom, uh, Ashley starts putting on a bunch of clothes from her closet. She starts taking off an outfit, putting on another one. Even if it's too small, she'll sort of like tug it on until it rips. And then she'll check herself in the mirror, sort of do... <laughs> she'll like stick her ass out and, you know, pull her shirt down a little bit uh, to reveal her cleavage and do this like pose for a picture. And then she'll take it off, do another one. Um, and it gets really concerning because she's not stopping. Even when the group tells her like, hey, Ashley, we got to go. Like, come on. Uh, there isn't even any weed in the house. It's just like some little seed riddled nugget. That's just nothing. Uh, so it's a pointless, uh, raid anyway. And they're like, come on, the sun's getting up. We gotta, we gotta get back before Bob <laughs> notices we're missing. And, um, and unfortunately, Ashley, it seems to be exhibiting the behavior of the fevered. And she is 
doing this repetitive action again and again without noticing her surroundings. And it causes everyone to panic. Uh, they run back to the camp, and there's Bob waiting for them. And then it cuts. Then it cuts back to uh, the past and gets back into Candace's family drama. And I understand wanting to pace it so that we don't get immediately back into the action. Like, you need to have a natural break. But it, I was just immediately like, no, come on, I need to know what's happening here. And it made the the past stuff feel very in the way. And I, I didn't really care for it. Uh, it made it feel more annoying, like a chore to get through. Um, and I, I, didn't, I don't want to feel that way because I think that when this narrative is focusing on the, on the really good stuff, on the character interactions of the survivors, it reaches some pretty interesting heights. And it, it reaches uh, for, it puts forward a, a compelling narrative that is very easy to read. But when you switch back to like, Oh, you know, here, your roommate's going to be making shark fin soup for this big party that's going to be happening. It's like, okay, that's, that's nice, I guess. Mm. Um, like, what, what's going on with Ashley, though? Um, and that's never explained, by the way. When it actually does get back to Ashley, uh, Bob sends, uh, Bob goes in to go kill her, basically, and one of the other survivors jumps in front of her trying to stop Bob, and Bob blows them both away. Uh, we hear about the second hand, so we don't know if he actually executed uh, Janelle. Janelle was the person who jumped in front of Ashley, uh, or what happened, because it's, again, told to us from the second hand, and uh, and it's, it's really con concerning and disturbing, because you sort of thought that these survivors were supposed to be uh, immune and they're clearly not and they sort of speculate like oh my gosh like maybe maybe Ashley was fevered long before she even met the group and it just took some some more incubation to get there but I don't really buy that and it's actually quite confusing how the fevered uh, get infected in the first place because of the CDC eventually comes out and says you know masks don't really work it is it's not conducted from person to person contact or something I don't know it's really sort of confusing how someone actually becomes fevered and whether these people these survivors that we're following are immune or it's just sort of waiting to be triggered um because later, when they get to where they're going, uh, which is a mall, Bob wants them to go to a mall, uh, he reveals that this is like his childhood mall. Like, he owns part of it. He was so invested in this mall that he actually bought part of it. He's a co-owner. And now that the apocalypse, happened, apocalypse has happened, he wants to go back there. And at first, I'm like, okay, they're doing the Romero thing where people instinctively want to go to a mall. That's been done a lot. Um, but it does sort of, it plays with the fact that it's Bob's nostalgic childhood place. Like they say, like his, uh, his, his boyhood was marred with, uh, like his parents arguing a lot and he would go to the mall to, to kind of get away from the harsh reality of his parents. So he didn't have to hear their fucking arguing or whatever. So he'd just walk around the mall endlessly. And now that they're back, um, he exhibits at nighttime the same sort of behavior as the fevered. Uh, he walks around the mall, sort of just shambling around, muttering to himself. And it's really weird because I don't know if this disease is supposed to be like supernatural or it's a cognitive thing or if it is just a fungal whatever. It seems like it's trying to do a number of different things at the same time. And it comes off as quite sloppy, I must say, because it's never really explored whether like, okay, so are you telling me that if you go to a place that's nostalgic and has, has good memories for you, that you'll sort of become fevered and want to wallow in that in that repetitive sort of coming back home but never coming back home sort of thing, you know? So I I don't know. I guess it works for Candace because Candace doesn't really can't she can't go back to China. So is she therefore immune? But it seems like like everybody in New York goes crazy. Everybody. Uh, all throughout the city get, becomes fevered and it seems like it takes forever for her to become fevered and I can guarantee to you that not everybody who lives in New York is nostalgic for it maybe if they'd lived there for like two or three years um, maybe they'd feel a little nostalgic I don't know it comes off as very confusing and I don't really get what the message is there I understand the the juxtaposition of of Candace working really hard at her job to earn money uh, that ends up being nothing it's not worth anything in the end um because the apocalypse happens and money's not worth anything except for toilet paper and and it's it's just a complete rat race so i i get it like i i really honestly get it if that was the point but uh it, it i feel like that message 
could have been communicated much more simply, much more straightforwardly, and uh, just give us more good stuff with the fevered. You know, I don't need all this drama of will they, won't they with Candace and her and her baby daddy. That's right. Oh, my gosh. That guy that she was in a relationship with gets her pregnant. Oh, is she going to tell him or not? He's leaving New York. What's going to happen? Um, I, I really don't mean to come off like an asshole here, but it is sort of... It's difficult for me to get invested in the lives of these characters uh, pre, um, pre-infection pre when I know that they're just going to die. Uh, it, it really makes it hard. And if you're going to do something like that, make it really short. Okay, let's let's just really quick, let's go over a few tropey stuff that needs to be put to bed here, okay? Number one, if you're going to do zombies or fungal stuff or whatever, some infection... Give us a baseline understanding of sort of the general rules of how it works. You don't need to get into the whole chemical components or whatever. I mean, think back to 28 Days Later. That was really straightforward, really simple, really effective in its introduction of the virus. It's just, these monkeys are infected with rage. And they can transfer it with a bite or fluid or whatever. And that's all we need. That's it. That's all. Mm, I'm good. I can go along with this. I understand. I don't need to know if it gives them like hyper mega muscles. I don't need to know if it affects their their adrenaline circuits or whatever, if they can even still think in there. Um, that's all speculative stuff that might be interesting, but uh, it isn't necessary. This sort of thing where it's like the fungus and nostalgia and memories and childhood and yeah, it seems like activation. I don't know. It sort of becomes too allegorical. It becomes, it, I don't know. It's trying to have its symbolism and phys- figuratively eat it too, you know? <laughs> so I, I don't know. So that's number one is if you're going to do something like this, put it straightforward, put it nice, clean on the table so that we can work around it. Uh, the Walking Dead does this quite well, uh, at least in the video game that I've played. I've only played the first season of that, um, where if you die, it's almost like a switch has been turned. If you die, you will turn into a zombie. You don't need to have been bitten, nothing. It's just, you're, you're dead, you'll come up a few seconds later. That's just how the world works now. Um, and that's that's all I need to know. If you're, if you're bitten or you just naturally die, zombie. Uh, which is a, is a really intimidating sort of thing because it implies that as long as humans are existing, zombies will exist. Uh, or we could go about this in the, uh, the Return of the Living Dead sort of style where in that one, it's just gas. It's gas that escaped from a military tube and it, it makes things come back to life. And I mean, any, like anything that was once alive comes back. Uh, in that movie, uh, like half of a dog starts moving and pinned butterflies in, a, in an exhibit uh, start coming back and uh, corpses and hands and everything works independently of itself. It doesn't need a brain. You can chop like that dog that I said, it, it's chopped in half, like up, like up and down um, from uh, it's like bi- bisected uh, where like there's a left half and a right half. And, and it's still yipping and barking and stuff. And that's really effective. I don't need to know exactly how the gas does that. But you can expand upon that in interesting ways. Because in that one, they try to burn the bodies of the zombies. Because they're like, okay, fine. If we can't freaking chop them up or destroy the brain or whatever, let's, let's burn them. Why not? But unfortunately, that's the worst thing you can do. Because all that does is make more zombie gas. And that goes into the atmosphere, mixes with water. And then when it rains, it seeps into the earth. And literal corpses start rising from their coffins. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's an example of a situation that is bad that only gets progressively worse. This one is just... I don't know. I... I, I want to like this a lot because it is really interesting that they do this in a way that's non-aggressive. That the that the zombies here are more sorrowful, and it's it's you're putting down part of the past that uh, that refuses to go away. It's it it is symbolically wonderful, but uh, I feel it does fall flat in a number of places. So that's basic big number one is if you're gonna have rules make them concrete, make them easy for the uh, viewer to understand. Number two, if you're going to do somebody like Bob, who's an, a religious extremist, make him more nuanced. We get it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I understand that these sort of characters come up, they get drunk off their own power, they sort of see themselves as a god, but 
if you had really stuck with like that World of Warcraft sort of mentality where maybe we find out that Bob was keeping like a journal of all of his activities and uh, was writing down like how he thinks about the group, like, aha, today that foul bod uh, Janelle jumped in front of the newly converted Ashley and I must pick up my sword of justice yet again and slay her down. That would have been actually kind of endearing and awesome. Um, or if you're gonna do uh, if you're gonna do somebody who's not cartoonishly evil, you could do it much like how 28 Days Later did it, where the colonel in there was a bad guy, but he was doing it in a way that he thought was the most practical way to just survive. His was okay. I've got soldiers that want to kill themselves because they have no hope. What am I gonna do? Let's just promise them something that they will not be able to deny: women. All right, and we'll set up a trap, and we'll get some women, and yes, we're going to rape them, but uh, I just need to focus on maintaining my power, my order. Uh, that's the cruelest sort of way of maintaining a a, um, a hold over your uh, subordinates, uh, and it's it's taking things to a moral dead zone where it's just how can you even imagine positioning yourself in that situation uh, and I think that uh, zombie narratives need to push our protagonists to that extreme where uh, decisions that normally we wouldn't even conceive of are now being weighed as as actual sort of options um and I think that sitting here in the comfort of our own homes without, by the way, I'm sorry, I'm fidgeting with something. I'm clicking together a pen and a, uh, and a uh, letter opener. I'm sorry, I need to put those down. I've been kind of picking them up and gesturing wildly with them. Um, so, yeah, it's and, and especially with this year, with COVID happening and particularly with the with the assault on the Capitol that uh, happened a few days ago. I'm recording this on the 12th of 2020, January 2020. I said that in the worst way possible. I'm sorry. Let me do that again. January 12th, 2021 um, is the day I'm recording this. And six days ago, uh, the capital of the United States was besieged by a bunch of Trump supporters uh, who tried to assassinate and kill uh, elected representatives in a colossal terrorist attack, uh, which thankfully was somewhat thwarted. But yeah, things are still pretty hot right now so um by the way i just cracked my knuckle sorry if you just heard a random pop there um so i think that i think that zombie narratives from here on out really do need to push our characters to uh creative new ways of exploring what people would do under the greatest amount of stress because nothing is off the table uh, in fiction and we should not hold anything off the table and we should not think that things are unrealistic because we are currently living in a situation where we are being witness right now to see how poisonous how vile how stupid how just absolutely baffling baffling buffoonery pardon me having a little bit of gas there because I'm just so like my body's trying to reject all these words that I'm saying the situation that I'm being beheld to this cartoonish evil that is that shouldn't be here that shouldn't be happening but it is so um I I think that going forward uh we need to be we need to allow ourselves to prance outside the box and that's what horror is really all about you know this is the white guy dies first horror podcast and believe me when I say that being ridiculous is not ridiculous, we need to let ourselves prance outside of the norm. And that's what horror is so good at doing. It's so good at making things strange and unfamiliar and pushing people to and exploring their boundaries of what they would do in just extreme circumstances. And that would teach us more about ourselves uh, and it isn't just necessarily like pure horror, like what would you do if a psychopath was trying to stab you or anything? You can see horror in like 1984. Right now, a lot of people are discussing 1984 because of uh, President Trump's ban from Twitter and saying, oh, this is like uh, 1984 where they're censoring information. Bitch, if this was like 1984, the government would be denying that Trump even existed. We never had President Trump. We had President Hillary Clinton these last four years, and that would be our reality. If you want to talk about 1984, censorship is not 1984. Rewriting reality and manipulating history is 1984. Trump's tweets are not 
going away. We are not denying they ever happened, all right? When people evoke the horror of 1984, they are not understanding exactly what that is. Um, I completely got off on a total tangent there. Uh, but suffice to say that when you are creating a villain in a crazy situation, an unprecedented situation, you really have to flex your imagination and push it to extremes and give us a antagonist who, he's a cult leader. He, this guy, Bob, is a cult leader, and I need to see more of his, his brutality and how he uh, manages to keep people on his side. At times, I felt like they should have, like, just shot him in the face. And I feel like they were going to, but he just sort of got the upper hand on him. Uh, it would be, it would be better if we actually got to see more of the other people around him, uh, actually, like why they follow him. Um, but as it is, they just sort of come off as mindless goons. Um, what else? What else? So that's number two. First one was give us rules. Second one was give us a good antagonist. Uh, I guess number three would be, if you're going to have zombies, make them do more interesting things, because the fevered really only show up on a few occasions, maybe like three or four. There's a couple of them doing weird little repetitive tasks, but you never see them in any sort of big group, and I really wanted to see a huge colossal wave of of these fevered doing something, like all getting on uh, the subway. Oh, you know what? Actually, the subway is a good example, because... Uh, as a result of infrastructure being uh, collapsed because there's no nobody showing up to work uh, to maintain anything, uh, at one point in the narrative, a uh, a big storm happens and it floods the subway like completely. Like you can't go into the entrance to the subway; it's just stuffed. It's jam packed full of water. It's underwater. The whole the whole subway system. And I really think it would have been effective if they had if the author had uh, had a at a little chapter where there's like just hundreds and hundreds or thousands of fevered that are walking in to try to get back into the subway because they always go to the subway that's the routine for how to get to work and they just walk into the water and drown and they just keep piling in and drowning and the bodies start just floating in the water and they keep pushing the bodies out and it's clogging it could have been like mega gruesome and i i'm very disappointed that it didn't go quite that far it never goes that far um so I feel like the fevered are underutilized. They're symbolically, I think I've said symbolically a lot. <laughs> They're symbolically uh, delicious to have it juxtaposed with the with the corporate side of things. But that's another thing, is that Candace herself sort of at times feels like she's been fevered because uh, even when everybody at her publishing company leaves or dies or whatever, um, she keeps going to work. And even after this, like, elevator almost kills her. Like, there's an elevator malfunction and uh, it almost collapses. It almost, like, falls in on itself uh, and falls to the, 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 to the bottom of the of the building, even though, by the way, there are safety guards, natural safety guards in elevator shafts, where if an elevator cable snaps, uh, you will not die in an elevator crash. It, that has never happened. There is no recorded uh, deaths resulted from somebody staying inside of an elevator while it's falling. Because, think about it like this, if you've ever had like a tube and you try to push something to the bottom really fast, the air pressure will compress and slow you down naturally. Think about like trying to push a uh, push a plunger uh, into a tube where there's no way the air can escape. And you at first it's easy to push it closed and then the air compresses and it gets harder and harder to push that uh, that air together. And that's what would happen in an elevator shaft. Yes, you know, there's ways for air to escape around the sides of the elevator shaft, but the air wouldn't be able to escape quick enough uh, for your uh, elevator to maintain its speed. So even if your elevator snaps, it won't give you a fatality unless horribly you are caught in between the elevator like you're trying to get on and the elevator falls while your other half is still on the on the floor you're exiting that has been unfortunately a fatality in real life where someone was trying to get on an elevator and it it uh it fell down the shaft and basically like i, I don't even want to know what it did to him it probably cut him in half uh but that is uh that's horrible to think about i'm sorry to to put that forward but hey it's the horror podcast and sometimes we got to address dark real life things um but for candace she's still going to work even though no one's there and even after this elevator thing she calls 911 the 911 operator's like what the fuck are you still doing in new york it's not worth it don't you think you should probably leave your job like money's worthless right now come on 
but she keeps going. She even moves into the office and keeps trying to do her job, even though there's no job left to do. And she eventually just uh, documents. Uh, she takes a lot of pictures of New York for people that are still living in countries that are not uh, fevered, like uh, like Iceland and Norway and Denmark, the places that have cold climates uh, where apparently the fever doesn't spread so fast, uh, which even I don't understand what that's all about. Are you saying like, again, is it a fungal thing? Is it an actual cold thing? I don't know. It's it's sort of confusing as to why that is. The, the actual fever is very half-assed. Um, and I don't mean to be mean. I'm sorry if somebody who reads this book is is uh, listening in on me right now and being like, wow, this guy's a dick. But hey, I call him like I see him. I'm not trying to be intentionally mean. Like I'm not I'm not here spewing a bunch of hate. I'm just saying what didn't work for me. And uh, if it worked for you, that's great. But for me, it was just it was a little confusing. Um, although I did read most of this book in one day. I, I got uh, I was on page like 120 at the beginning of this day, and I just sort of powered through it uh, the rest of the 170 pages today because I wanted to get uh, this podcast going. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's all right. Anyway, so she's taking pictures, uh, and eventually she goes out, she leaves the office building, she gets locked out, and, uh, and she goes to look for a cinder block outside, and while she's out and about, she, she goes to a, an ATM to pull out some money so she can go to a, like a, like a little taco truck kind of thing, and, uh, when she pulls out her receipt, she actually prints out a fucking receipt for her, for her cash that she withdraws, like it matters anymore, uh, and she sees the date on the receipt, and it's, it's the, uh, today is the day that would be her last date, like her contract has run out, the contract that they gave her to sort of still come to the office, because when the, when the fever was going really strong, they gave her the option to work from home, or she could work from the office and get paid, like, a shit ton of money. They don't say how much it is, but she sort of thinks to herself, like, oh my god, like, I could afford to move into a bigger apartment. I could get a Frappuccino every day. I could afford to uh, give my baby a better life. And um, even her boss is like, look, I know you probably need the money, but it's just safer for you to work from home. And she says, no, 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 no. It's fine. I live by myself anyway. Like, I was, yeah. She justifies coming in to, to work to get a bunch of money. And uh, that part feels very frustrating to to see that, like, the entire infrastructure of society has collapsed, but she's still so invested in money. And even now, like, she's only... Once she sees that her, the today is the day that her contract runs out, then she sort of thinks, like, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> it's not worth it anymore. I'm, my money pool has dried up. And it's it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating. And I think that that's, that's very indicative of where we are right now with COVID, where people have to keep going to work and possibly getting infected, even though we're in the fucking apocalypse right now. Um why does why does money matter right now? Why, if people are dying by the thousands every single day, and yet it's still we're, we're still wage slaves. You know, we got to keep pounding that time clock until it gives us some money to live. So it's this all hits very hard, and it's it again. I have to say that uh, that this narrative is so frustrating because of how real life has played out. <laughs> it's awful. Um, and then it cuts back after all of this discussion about her past and her parents and her uncles and her relationship with Jonathan and the Schwarzenegger dick uh, and all that stuff. It gets back to the Bob narrative and Bob like figures out that she's pregnant and wants to sort of keep her, you know, keep her alive because she's carrying the essential like Christ child sort of figure. And she eventually realizes that Bob is fevered, that he's going out and doing these little walks that he doesn't remember doing, which is confusing because it's like if he's fevered, shouldn't he be like unable to come back from it? I don't know. Um, and she does eventually get the keys uh, to some cars away from Bob as he's inertly just walking through the mall and she kicks the shit out of him. She pushes him down. She kicks him in the belly, the face, the groin, the face. She spits on him, but he isn't putting up any resistance. So her, her success, her, uh, severing, her severance, uh, from Bob doesn't feel very satisfying because he's just like a, a crash test dummy at this point. He's getting his shit kicked in, uh, but there's no catharsis. And then she just gets a car, she drives away, she decides to drive to Chicago, because that's where Jonathan and his Schwarzenegger dick <laughs> said that they always wanted to live, that was like his childhood home, which again makes me think like, nostalgia, oh no, is she going to a nostalgic place, what's happening? Um, 
and the and the novel ends with with her arriving in in Chicago. She says she drives as far as she can before the traffic gets clogged and and the last little I'm looking here in the in the thingy. The last little line is just up ahead there's a massive littered river planked by an elaborate wrought iron red bridge. Beyond the bridge is more skyline, more city. I get out and start walking. Like, that feels like the beginning of a new book. Like, I don't know if, if her baby's okay. I don't know if there's any other survivors. Because, honestly, their their group, Bob's group, is the only bunch of people that we see that are not fevered. So they may very well be one of the only groups left. There's no conflict with any other sort of uh, scavengers or anything. Um, so the conflict is solely with Bob. And that doesn't feel very wonderful because he doesn't really do much. Uh, so there's a number of different things that, let's admit it, there are apocalypse tropes that are tropes for a good reason. You know, there needs to be another group of survivors that are willing to take things further than our group is, that are more moralistically disgusting. I don't want to really bring up The Road by Cormac McCarthy, uh, because I brought it up during The Last of Us, and The Road is definitely not, like, the end-all, be-all of apocalypse stories. That's not even a zombie apocalypse, that's just a general apocalypse story uh, that gets into the depravities of mankind as a whole, um... But I, I do think that there there need to be more conflict in this. And as it stands, it's kind of a sleepy read. And I, I have a big problem with that because how do you make the post-apocalypse sort of sleepy? Uh, it's, it's, it is very, very slow. You know, eventually she, she talks a lot about the Bible industry and oh will they be able to get the gemstone manufacturers to to find more emeralds or whatever it's like come the fuck on like i'm yes that's all sort of interesting i want to know if bob's gonna shoot you in the face <laughs> come on um so anyway i i didn't really care for this book all that much this book uh is not one i probably would have read on my own this is one of 10 books that i'm going to be reading for my Comprehensive exams. I wanted to uh, select ten books because um, we're allowed to pick ten books. I want to pick ten books that focused on horror written by multicultural uh, uh, authors. Uh, so in this case, Ling Ma is Chinese. I did not want to have uh, any uh, authors that are, you know, the typical sort of white male horror authors. So actually, I'll read out some of my my selections here because I'm probably going to be talking about them more. I didn't really go into it at the beginning of this podcast, but this is the first podcast that I'm doing uh, that discusses books. And I'm, I'm mostly doing this as a as a method of sort of capturing my thoughts and feelings about this book. Uh, while I still have them fresh in my mind. So eventually, these will probably be, uh, this podcast will be something that I listen to um, when, I, when I'm when i going back to restudy up on my books. So here's some of the, here's some of the authors that I'm, I'm going to be reading for my comps. We've got, da, 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 we've got A Congregation of Jackals by S. Craig Zaylor. Uh, that's Z-A-H-L-E-R. Uh, he, God, what did he do? He did like, he did like some vampire thing. I think it was... Was that one where they're all in Alaska, I think? Hold on. This is going to be important to me. I should have looked this up beforehand. Uh, but I think he was a, a writer on something. Uh, he seems kind of like batshit insane. <laughs> Which is exactly what I want uh, from from a horror author. Uh, speaking of which, while I'm looking this up, I should mention that one of the books that I have that I'm not uh, currently doing, but maybe I should do, is one by uh, Chuck... Palinwick, Palinuk. Um, he's the guy who wrote Fight Club. Uh, oop, hold on, don't do the. Okay, I thought I was gonna do like a voice to type thing. My phone's kind of freaking out right now because I haven't charged it in a long time. You know, when you haven't charged your phone in a long time, and it sort of glitches out a, a little bit. No, don't go to Twitter. Ah, although I should plug my Twitter. It's uh, Jared White Seven at Twitter. Uh, but Palinwick is uh, is a great is a fantastic horror writer. Uh, I've got his book. Uh, Make something up. Uh, short stories you can't forget. Uh, I only read one so far, and I can definitely say that I won't forget it because it's about uh, it's about this guy uh, whose whose father's dying in the hospital, and I guess his father had always been this dickhead who um who did like these racist, uh, like sexist, awful jokes, like really vile stuff. Um, 
and and it, it rubbed off on his son in like the worst way possible. And now the only way that the son knows how to communicate with his father is in making these horrible jokes. So while um while the dad's dying, the son's making these you know like what do you get when you cross uh and what did the China guy say to this and um it's uh, it's really it's really disgusting and sad and it's purposefully sad obviously because people are supposed to be you know when their parents are dying like all sad and all that stuff um and sort of somber and reflecting on all the good memories they had but this story is hard because it's the only way he ever connected with his father is through this horrible sort of narrative of jokes that are offensive and ugly and yeah, it's just awful. And then when he sees that his father is like crying or something, he makes fun of him, even though his like hair's falling out. And he's, I think he's got cancer or something. And he's like, "Fine, I'll, I'll, I'll really make you laugh." And he takes out a pie and slams the pie into his dad's fucking face and says, "There, you fucking old man, laugh, laugh." And it's just really intense and really sad. It's only like twelve pages long, but man, I'll tell you that that story stuck with me way more than Severance ever will. Um. By the way, I have a Zaylers thing here. Uh, his directorial debut is with Bone Tomahawk, and I really should uh, I should talk about that on the podcast because Bone Tomahawk was fucking amazing. Uh, but he also did Brawl in the Cell Block ninety nine or Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine and Dragged Across Concrete, <laughs> which sounds awful. I uh, as a as a little lad, I was once reclining on the. On the playground floor, I was just sort of staring up at the sky, and I remember this little girl uh, grabbed my arms and dragged me on the concrete, and uh, it fucked up my back a little bit. So I I know what being dragged across concrete feels like. It's not good. So he wrote Congregation of Jackals. I'm really looking forward to reading that. That's going to be fucking crazy. Uh, Then I've also got Her Body and Other Parties uh, by Carmen Maria Machado. Uh, that's uh, a bunch of short stories, uh, and I'm really interested in short stories because I'm writing a little book of short stories uh, when I can never get time between all my <laughs> projects and schooling and stuff. Uh, then I've got Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones, which if you don't know, Stephen Graham Jones is the man. He is really cool. I always see him on Twitter posting stuff about, like, he's really big into the classic horror icons like Freddy and uh, and Ghostface and, and Jason and all that stuff. He's got a bunch of cool masks and everything. Stephen Graham Jones is fucking awesome. I really would have wanted to have a class with him. He actually teaches at the University of Colorado. Um, and I totally would have wanted to be his uh, PhD student, uh, but unfortunately the University of Colorado, due to COVID, is not accepting PhD applications. Uh, I don't know if they're accepting anybody to the college, but that was quite uh, gutting to know that he was not available to be uh, my mentor. Uh, so that's another one. Uh, also, of course, Octavia E. Butler, who is also absolutely wild. Her narratives go all over the place. Uh, this one's Fledgling. I think that's the vampire one. Uh... Shori is a mystery found alone in the woods. She appears to be a little black girl with traumatic amnesia and near-fatal wounds. But she's a 53-year-old vampire, yep, with a ravenous hunger for blood. Good. Good for her. Um, And then I have to, unfortunately, I had to put in one or two white authors. uh, And in this case, I I chose Stephen King. uh, Ooh, and, you know, here, just pause the podcast for a second and think about what Stephen King book you would use uh, to uh, use as a comprehensive exam book. It's one of his short story collections. I'll let you think about it for a second. It's uh, dun, dun, dun. It's Everything's Eventual, which is a very solid collection of 14 tales. Uh, very good. Uh, the other white author that I have here, I only got two, uh, but the other one is Clive Barker and uh, Books of Blood, Volumes 1 to 3. Uh, those should be pretty good. Again, I'm really interested in short stories, so I figured that, you know, if I'm going to have some white authors, I should do uh, some, some classic short story goodness. Um... Although, personally, I really think we should move beyond uh, having Stephen King uh, being so synonymous with horror. Because he does do other stuff that isn't necessarily horror. Uh, but I do think his short story works are where he shines the best. Uh, and then the, lo- the last book is Coyote Songs by Gabino Iglesias. And I know nothing about this, but the text looks really big. Uh, it's only, like, barely 200 words. Oh, it's got his Twitter in here. Uh, what is it? I just saw it. Oh, come on. Where is it? Hold on. His Twitter is at BRBJDO. <laughs> that's that's delightful. I wish my my Twitter handle was as catchy as that. Um, but those are the ten... Is that ten? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
guess that's only eight. Oh, no, I'm also doing Uzumaki by Junji Ito. And maybe the Chuck Palinwick one. Uh, but we'll see. Um, anyway, but Severance was all right. If I had to give it a rating, I'd say it was like, I don't know, five out of ten. It was acceptable. Wasn't great. I could definitely see some areas where it could be a lot stronger and expanded upon. And if you're ever interested in writing a post-apocalyptic narrative, I hope you'll have learned one or two things about sort of where the good stuff really is in these sort of tales. As a matter of fact, if you want a really, 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 really good uh, Asian horror zombie flick, a good movie, uh, watch Train to Basan. That one I actually might cover. You know what? Fuck it. Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about next week. I'm going to talk about Train to Basan next week, so uh, keep an eye out for that. That's going to be freaking amazing. It's emotional, it's it's gory as hell, it's funny, it's got everything you could ever want. It's it's actually a really good rival to Shaun of the Dead. Uh, and in a lot of ways, uh, Train to Basan is superior to Shaun of the Dead, which uh, is actually quite shocking, because Shaun of the Dead is like one of my favorite just movies in general of all time. Um but I really ought to give Train to Busan another watch because it is legendary. Uh, but anyway, guys, so I think that's all I have to say for today. Uh, I really appreciate you guys sitting around and uh, listening to my uh, book review, basically. <laughs> Me doing a little bit of uh, self-indulgent uh, exploration of a narrative that I'm going to use later for my own purposes. Um, but yeah, so that was that. And I think I've said everything I need to. Wonderful. Oh, uh, there was one other thing. I wanted to compare this, this, uh, this, the, the fevered in this to white zombie because, uh, the, the fevered are very similar to the, to the zombies in white zombie in that they do menial tasks over and over again. Although in severance, they, they lack a master. They lack any sort of controlling force. And I kind of really would have wanted to see like a mixture of that. Like, can we do a modern white zombie where, where the zombies are sort of used for menial labor? I think there could be a really interesting narrative if someone had done like a modern, uh, white zombie in a different sort of context. Um, and I think that severance is a good sort of outline on maybe a springboard on how to get there. So anyway, that's all I really wanted to say. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. So ta-ta for now, stay safe out there, and uh, see you when I see you. Bye. Stan, don't you think you were well, a little hard on him? You see that crap? All that horror crap? Things coming out of crates and eating people? Dead people coming back to life? People turning into weeds, for Christ's sake? Well, yes, I did, but I... Well, you want him reading that stuff? Well, no, but... All right, then. I took care of it. That's why God made fathers, babe. That's why God made fathers. <laughs>